Good morning, everyone. Uh, great to be here with you. Sort of a dramatic ending there. Uh, we are in the last week of our look at the subject of wisdom in the book of Proverbs, and we'll be moving on to another sort of subset of that next week. Won't tell you what it is quite yet. One little announcement before we get going, and that is this Friday, we'll be having a special Good Friday a moment of prayer and worship over in Elevate and from 5.30 to 6.30 p.m. Love to have you with us. Uh, no prayer that morning as we customarily do, but we will be praying over there uh, in the afternoon, 5.30 to 6.30. So come and do what Christians all over the world have done for centuries, and that is take some time to reflect on the strange goodness of Good Friday. Amen. So let's get into our time here in God's Word. Our scripture reading this morning will be from a selection of Proverbs primarily in chapter 16. Here we go. The plans of the righteous are just, but the advice of the wicked is deceitful. Plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors they succeed. To humans belong the plans of the heart, but from the Lord comes the proper answer of the tongue. Commit to the Lord whatever you do, and he will establish your plans. The Lord works out everything to its proper end, even the wicked, for a day of disaster. The lips of a king speak as an oracle, and his mouth does not betray justice. Better a patient person than a warrior, one with self-control than one who takes a city. Many are the plans in a person's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. And that's God's word to us this morning. Again, we've been looking at the subject of wisdom in the book of Proverbs. And what we've found along the way is this, that wisdom is hard to find, but wisdom is crucial for your life. It's hard to find, but crucial for your life. With wisdom, Proverbs says over and over, you can win every battle. But without it, you'll be brought to ruin. So why is wisdom so hard to find? Well, wisdom is just hard to find because of this truth, that wisdom is actually less something that you find. And wisdom is more something you become. Did you catch that? Wisdom is something more that you become. Wisdom is far less of a saying. Wisdom is far more of a process, or another way of putting it is this, that your ability, my ability to make wise decisions, Proverbs says, uh, things like knowing who to marry, knowing where to live, knowing how to handle that really tricky employee or coworker, those things have way more to do with your character than anything else, with your being a person of wisdom. Other words. So, what does the book of Proverbs give us to help shape us into becoming that person of wisdom? Oh, it's one thing that you may not have noticed before, and it's this Proverbs gives us philosophy. Uh, Philosophy, yeah, philosophy. Big picture contemplation of the nature of the universe. Now, right about now, you're beginning to think, Morgan, I'm a pragmatic, you know, ultra practical, you know, hands-on, live in the moment, work with my own hands, kind of 21st century person. How does philosophy help my life? Morgan, my eyelids are already beginning to droop at the mention of the word philosophy. Oh, but if that's you, hang on, consider this. Consider that the most practical... The most down-to-earth, the most hands-on book the Bible has to offer, the book of Proverbs, 
actually talks quite a lot about philosophy. Well, well, what's that telling us? So it's telling us this, that philosophy, that the big picture contemplation of the nature of the universe is utterly practical. It's utterly practical because what you believe about the big picture stuff actually shapes and determines who you are now. So let's look at the biggest big picture stuff the book of Proverbs give us. Let's look at your present life, at your future life, and at eternity itself this morning. We'll do that through and by doing three things, chapter 16 in particular tells us we should do. We should, number one, we should cast a lot. Number two, make our plans. And finally, understand the end. Let's go here. Number one, cast the lot. Let's just begin by reflecting on a proverb we read earlier, but it usually gives folk quite a lot of trouble. It's 1633. It says the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So what is this proverb among others like it? What is this? What is this challenging us to do? Well, it's forcing us to ask and answer a single question, which is this. Who controls the future? Who controls the future? Who determines where history goes? Does man control the future or does God? Does a person's individual choice determine where they end up or does God's choice determine where they end up? And the answer that the book gives us is this. Yes, Yes. Yes, both are true. A person's own choice sets into motion a chain of events. See, a person that says here chooses to cast the lot into the lap. This is sort of like a primitive coin toss here, the lot casting was. And this is saying here, no matter what you choose, though, whether you choose heads or tails, God works every choice into his overriding and master plan. Let's look at what 1921 says here. It's another another way uh, of putting it. It says, many, many are the plans in a person's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. So again, whose plans are they? Well, well, they're your plans, right? You come up with them. To you belong the plans of your heart. You carry out your plans, but God has a bigger purpose. That prevails is a saying. Oh, it's amazing, isn't it? How one little sentence in Proverbs can just make your brain explode with with possibilities and inexplicable stuff. Why is this? Well, it's because we as human beings, we have no other worldview that holds these twin truths together. We always tend to pull apart what the Bible insists you got to hold together if you're going to live a wise life. So let me give you two here now, two basic and contrasting views that humans have had over the centuries. There are two basic ways we tend to pull apart what the Bible insists must be held together. And the first view is what's called fatalism. Fatalism, and there are a few varieties of that, of fatalism. And fatalism basically says the future is fixed and nothing that you can do can change that. 
And there's various strands of this, various kinds of fatalism. There's, first of all, there's Eastern fatalism, uh, Eastern philosophy, which has as its perspective, uh, foundationally, the perspective of what's called kismet. Kismet, and some of you have heard of that. Again, another way of saying this is all is predetermined, all is foreordained apart from anything you do. Now, if you've ever seen the movie Slumdog Millionaire, you may remember the opening scene, the opening title card of the movie reads this. It says, this is how it sets up the movie, Jamal Malik is one question away from winning 20 million rupees. How did he do it? Four choices. You get A, he cheated, B, he's lucky, C, he's a genius, or D, it is written. It is written. And of course, the answer that the movie gives you because it's based on Hindu philosophy is that it is written. It's D. It was, it was predetermined. It was going to happen no matter what. That's an Eastern version of fatalism. But a Western version, a bit more ancient version of fatalism is from the, the famous Greek play by the, the author Sophocles, and perhaps you've read it. It's called Oedipus Rex, right? In which the main character, Oedipus, had a sort of a prophecy spoken over his life from the oracle there that when he was born, he would do what? Kill his father and marry his mother. Doesn't sound like a good fate there, right? So when this fate was spoken over him, his parents did everything they could. And we see in the play, he did everything he could to avoid this terrible and awful fate. But as it turned out, spoiler alert, sorry if you haven't read it, everything he did only fulfilled what had been spoken over him. He killed his own father and married his own mother. It was all determined. It was his fate. And nothing he did could change that. But today, though, in our modern Western world, we have another strand of this. It's called modern scientific fatalism, which is endorsed by many scientists today, especially in the world of physics. Chief among them is, of course, the brilliant man, Steve, Dr. Stephen Hawking, and perhaps you've heard of him. And Stephen Hawking put modern scientific fatalism like this. He believes, he said, though we feel... We feel that we can choose what we do. Our biological processes are governed by the laws of physics and chemistry and therefore are as determined as the orbits of the planets. It is hard to imagine how free will can operate if our behavior is determined by physical law. So it seems that we are no more than biological machines and that free will is just an illusion. Yeah, that's his perspective. So you've got fatalism on one hand, or kismet on one hand, and on the other, you've got what we'll call today Americanism. Americanism, which is sort of kind of like a, a, a mutated karma where everything's up to you. And Americanism sort of goes like this. We say this. We say, I am a totally free, autonomous, and independent creature who can make him or herself into anything he or she wants and whose future is absolutely and totally in his or her hands. Yeah, I felt pretty good to say, I gotta admit. Felt pretty good to hear probably too for some of you, didn't it? Even though it's absolutely not true. But we like that though. It sounds good to us. It's like a bat getting scratched there because we're products of our cultural moment and this kind of philosophy, this belief, this Americanism has permeated everything down even into the movies that your kids watch and you probably watched with them. For example, the Pixar film Brave is actually all about this question, who determines my life? Hmm? Do I have a fixed fate or 
is my life up to me? And the lesson of the movie, uh, the, the answer is delivered in the final words, the final scene, when the main character says to us, the audience, she says this, our fate lies within us. You only have to be brave enough to see it. Or another way of putting it is from the immortal words of another brilliant and influential scientist, Doc Brown, who he said to Marty McFly in the greatest movie trilogy of all time, Back to the Future. And at the end of the trilogy, yeah, I love the movies, but at the end of the third one, he says this, he shows up and says, the future is whatever you make it, so make it a good one. Yeah, yeah that sounds like I got an amen right there, yeah. Whew. And Doc Brown, he's, he's pretty good. It's a great line, but not only is that perspective laughed out of the academic world today, but if you're a thinking person, you ought to be terrified if that's true. That the future is totally up to us. I mean, the future is absolutely in our hands. That ought to scare you enough to never get out of bed again. Why? Well, just take 60 seconds, right, and look back on your life. Actually, let's just take 60 seconds and look back on my life. All right. I'm 40, year old, uh, 40 years old now. When I was 19, I prayed and I prayed I would marry a certain girl. I knew she was the one for me. I did everything in the world to make it happen. And when it didn't, I was crushed. I thought the war was over. But now that I've been married to the love of my life, Carrie, for the last 15 years, as of last week, thank you very much, I see now, yeah, that was stimulating you for applause there, right, uh, you, you fell for it, but I see now that actually not marrying the other girl was the best thing that never happened to me, right? And I'm sure she would say the same of me, man, the best thing that never happened to me, I didn't marry that guy, right? She dodged a bullet, I'm sure. But how many other things have you and I wanted and gone after that if they had come to pass would have ruined us, right? We didn't know then what was truly good for us. How many things do you want right now that if you got them might bring you to ruin and disaster? Oh, therefore, we should never want brave to be true and our fate to lie within us, nor should we want back to the future to be true. And the future is whatever we make it. Thankfully, the answer the Bible ultimately gives isn't kismet on one hand or karma on the other. Thankfully, it's not Doc Hawking on one hand or Doc Brown on the other. So what is it? Well, it's closer to another great American theologian, Garth Brooks, who said this. He said, sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers. Yeah, sorry, millennials, for the shameless Gen X reference right there, right? He's saying this, I prayed, I acted, I had a plan in my heart. But it was God's purpose that prevailed. Yeah, country music, uh, the arbiter there of theology for our culture. All right, back to the question, who, who determines the future? Is it God or is it us? The Bible says yes. Yes, not, not 20%, 80%, not even 50-50, but 100% equally. See, the lot is saying, is cast into your lap. You cast a lot. You make your plans. You got plans in your heart. But it's God whose purpose and plan will prevail. If you believe in either fatalism on one hand or Americanism on the other, you'll never live the wise life that Proverbs points you to here. All right, that's the teaching. Now, some of you are saying, all right, well, how does believing in that help me in my everyday life? Right? Oh, no. Listen, it's got everything to do with how you live your life 
at every moment for the rest of your life. So let me show you, if I can, how believing in and living out this view, biblical view of who holds the future will impact your daily life and choices that you make. You've got to do this. Number two, the Bible says we've got to, number two, make our plans. So what kind of plans are we going to make? Well, let's apply this in four ways, and I'll set it up with this question. If you really believed, like the proverb said, if you really believe that you must make your own plans, you've got plans to make, and that God has a bigger plan that will prevail, how can you live right now? Four ways. Number one, you can actually obey God more fervently. The great missionary to India, a man by the name of William Carey, was a young man had a, had a burning heart to, to take the gospel to the people of India so they would come to know Jesus, and he implored the people and the church around him to send him and his, and his friends across the world to a spiritually dark place, pleaded with them for backing and financing and support, but they wouldn't do it, and finally one of the church leaders in his day had had enough. Actually, he was the chairman of this committee here, and famously, this man said, actually infamously, said something. And his words, unfortunately for him, have been preserved for us today. And this man, the chairman, said to William Carey, he said, Young man, sit down. You are an enthusiast, meaning you're all excited about something. He said, When God pleases to save the heathen, he will do it without your help or mine. Oh, Oh, man. Well, what was that? What was that man saying? What did he have? He had a misunderstanding, didn't he? of what Proverbs teaches us here. See, but William Carey, oh, he was pressed inwardly to obey God more fervently and to preach and proclaim the gospel more boldly because he knew the souls of men were counting on the proclamation of the gospel. And so in 1793, at the age of 32, Carey set off for India, took his wife Dorothy and three young sons with them. And in his diary in February 1795, he wrote this. He said, this is indeed the valley of the shadow of death for me. Oh, what I would give for a sympathetic friend to whom I might open my heart. But God is here, not only who has compassion, but who is able, he said, to save to the uttermost. See, he obeyed the Great Commission. He went into all the world to make disciples. Why? Because he knew that God works through our plans, through our plans. Do you know this? Do you know that? Do you know this? Do you know that people around you, like William Carey knew, people are counting on you to follow and obey God with passion and fervency. If you do, then number number two, secondly, you can lead then more courageously. You can lead more courageously. And I love this chapter here, chapter 16, because it applies this whole teaching for us. It gives us all kind of lessons about actually leadership. And you can see this as you get into the heart of the chapter. It goes through like six scriptures in a row, all about kings, all about kings and leadership and how kings rule and kings lead and leadership works. And it's impossible to miss. So let's look at actually one and a half of them as we go here. 1610 says this, the lips of a king... Speak as an oracle, and his mouth does not portray justice. Well, what's this telling you? It's telling you this, not just to sit back and think, well, you know, if God determines where stuff ends up, I mean, I can just sit back and get my money's worth out of Netflix, if you know what I mean. No, it's just telling you, God, no, he needs kings. 
He needs leaders to get involved in the world, to step up and to be a part of his plan. He needs us to do what it also says later, to have honest scales. That's a way of saying that leaders and business people and teachers and educators and students ought to deal honestly and truthfully with integrity in their work. Right? And if we're not, if kings aren't that way, this is saying society will suffer. Society will suffer without good leadership. Why? Because God and the world are counting on our plans. Therefore, no matter what your age, no matter how young or how old you are, no matter what you have or what you don't have, no matter what's been given to you or what's been deprived, your plans matter. Your plans matter, right? If you really believed that, if you really believed that your plans were crucial to the future of the world, and that God had your back, which is what the book of Proverbs tells you, is the score here. How would you plan? How would you lead? (laughs) You lead with absolute fearlessness, wouldn't you? And courage. What would you do? You could take a risk. Therefore, number three, you can follow more humbly. You can follow more humbly. Let's look at this, 1632. It says, better a patient person than a warrior, one with self-control than one who takes a city. Oh, I love this. This is saying that what matters more than having power is having patience. Having patience. What's better even than being a leader is being able to be a long sufferer. Why? Because what a warrior wins with fighting, can you see? He'll lose with fighting because he's just fighting all the time. He's fighting everybody. But when a patient person wins something, A patient person keeps that. Because why? Because they're able to have been patient. They know that God's got a bigger plan and is working even imperceptibly when they can't see it. In other words, a person who knows God holds the future even beyond their leaders, even beyond their bosses, they can relax a bit, right? Because sometimes waiting is better than warring. That's what this is telling you. Having control of self is better than having control of the city. Because if you can't control self, you'll lose the city in the end. But now let's put all these three things together. And if we can do these, then ultimately we can also do this. We can also suffer more hopefully. Proverbs 16, 4 says, The Lord works out everything to its proper end, even the wicked for a day of disaster. Now, I won't get too deeply into this as we'll look at in depth the connection the Bible makes between wisdom and suffering starting next week, but there is one little thread I'd like to weave in the day, and it's the thread of the story of Joseph in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis. And if you know Joseph's story, if you've read Genesis before, you see that when we meet Joseph in Genesis, he's on his way to becoming a full-blown narcissist. He really is by the age of 17. He's on the way to ruin, and so is his family. And so is his brothers because of the brokenness of his own father, Jacob. And his jealous brothers, on their way to ruin, on their way to disaster, sell Joseph, their teenage brother, into slavery. And Joseph spends the next 13 years of his life in various pits and prisons and situations where he is, in general, betrayed, forgotten, and seemingly abandoned by God. As a matter of fact, the name of God, God's name isn't even mentioned for over a decade in Joseph's life. And yet, by the end of the story, at the end of the book, we see Joseph's whole family together 
weeping, wailing, falling on each other, forgiving one another. So loud it caused a commotion in the city at the sheer noise they made together being reconciled. Let's ask, how could God heal this broken family? And by the way, save the world from a massive famine. Oh, here's how. He would allow one son to be sold into slavery through the wicked plans of his own family. And that's why Joseph could say at the end of the book to his brothers and his family, which is both the theological high point, it's the summit of the whole Bible, and it's almost word for word what you see here in Proverbs 16, 4. Joseph says this, he said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Oh, I love it. This is, the, this is perhaps the greatest verse in all the Bible. Oh, look at it. Stare it in the face, church, if you're suffering today, especially as a result of perhaps something someone's done to you or hasn't done to you, because this doesn't minimize evil. It doesn't overlook it and say, oh, well, it's not a big deal. It didn't really matter. No, this calls evil what it is. It's evil. It was wrong. It was intended to be wrong. And yet this is saying there is a greater power at work in the world and your life. And the evil things people do to you, evil things done on you. But it's also saying this in Proverbs 16, that sometimes, sometimes it's only at the end that you can see it. It's only at the end that you can see. Sometimes it's only at the end that you can see what it was all for. Only at the end can you see what God was up to. Listen, if you really believed that God loves you right now and he's working right now in your life, That means you can have hope in every single moment. Do you think Joseph should have had hope all along? Do you? Yeah. Then so should you. So should you. A.W. Tozer put it like this in his book, A Knowledge of the Holy. He said, it is vitally important that we hold the truth of God's infinite wisdom as a tenet of our creed. But this is not enough. We must, by the exercise of faith and by prayer, bring it into the practical world of our day-by-day experience. Most of us go through life praying a little, planning a little, jockeying for position, hoping but never being quite certain of anything, and always secretly afraid that we will miss the way. This is a tragic waste of truth and never gives rest to the heart. There is a better way. It is to repudiate our own wisdom and take instead the infinite wisdom of God. Our insistence upon seeing ahead is natural enough, but it is a real hindrance to our spiritual progress. God has charged himself with full responsibility for our eternal happiness and stands ready to take over the management of our lives the moment we turn in faith to him. It's a great thought, isn't it? So, so how can we do that? Huh? How, can we, how can we turn in faith to him and not tragically waste this truth? We must, number three, do what Proverbs says we should do. Understand something it calls the end. The end. Let's, let's look at Proverbs 16.4 one more time. The Lord works out everything to its proper end, even the wicked for a day of disaster. Oh, this is telling us something astonishing here. And by the way, it's so astonishing that our modern translators don't have the guts to translate and put in there what the old King James did, which is this. This verse shouldn't read, the Lord works out everything to its proper end, but literally in the Hebrew it says, God works out everything for himself, 
for himself. Not just to its proper end, but for himself, including, catch this, including evil and wickedness. Oh, this is saying that even evil, even wickedness are just employees of God, in a sense. They're working for him for his plan. And this is incredible, by the way. This is incredible for two reasons. First, this proverb is trying with all its power to reassure you that God's plan is winning and that he is working it all out right now. But we got to ask, why is it trying to reassure you? Because it sure looks like that's not happening right now. It sure looks like evil's winning now. It sure looks like things aren't working out now, right? It sure looks like things are falling apart right now. And do you know why it looks that way? Because they are. Because they are. Things are falling apart. Things are falling apart right now. The universe is falling apart right now. It's called the second law of thermodynamics. Things always go towards disorder and randomness and chaos and breaking down. The universe is a lot like your dorm room if you're a college student or it's like your minivan if you're a parent of small children, right? It just gets worse and worse as it goes. Or another way of putting it is that the universe it's kind of like that piece of chicken that you took off the grill last night, right? I mean, let's say you, you take that thing off the grill and you let it cool for, oh, about mm, six months. What's going to happen to it? Oh, it's going to fall apart. It's going to decay. It's going to rot and smell, and the rotting and smelling are going to fill your house. And the same thing is happening to your body right now, (laughs) just at a slower pace. Though we don't want to admit it or think about it, right? I mean, that size, four waist, perfect physique, incredible memory, though you can prop them all up for a while, they'll fall apart in the end. I watched this last week, actually, with my own grandfather at his funeral. He was a war hero, led men in battle on multiple continents, highly decorated, combat medals, then served his community tirelessly for decades, including children that were impoverished. He came from an impoverished background, didn't want to forget where he came from, grew up, no dad, single room, dirt floor house. His mind was a steel trap, body was made for action, got multiple degrees, but in the end, it all betrayed him, his body and mind broke down. The poet W.B. Yeats, he put it like this. He said, things fall apart. The sinner cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. And he's not just talking about your waistline. Not just talking about my grandfather. He's talking about the universe. The universe. So first, first, this proverb acknowledges that things are falling apart right now. It doesn't look like they're going to work out. But second, second, this is insisting at the same time, while things don't appear to be going to plan in the middle of this, that God still has a plan to bring every choice, every non-choice, every good choice, bad choice, evil choice into one thing. And to one point, it says this, for what? It says, for himself. For himself. God's bringing it all, working it all out. It says, for himself. How can this happen? Oh, it tells you how. It gives us a pointer, Proverbs 16, 4 does. It says, for God to work everything out. There's got to be, it says, judgment upon evil. God's going to bring judgment upon injustice and cruelty and selfishness. It's saying there's going to have to be a day. Where evil's defeated, wickedness is judged. There's going to have to be what Proverbs calls here a day of disaster. A day of disaster. 
Oh, and centuries after this, though, there was a day of disaster upon the wicked, but not in a way that anyone saw coming. Because if God, if God were to judge every single selfish person and action and thought, guess what? He'd have to bring us all, wouldn't he? To a day of judgment and disaster personally. So how could he do this though? How could God do both? How could he work out everything for himself, bring judgment upon every evil, selfish, and wicked thing, and yet not bring a day of disaster upon every one of us? How could he do it? Well, a better question would be to ask, how did he do it? How did he do it? He did it like this. It was one day, many years later, after the writer of Proverbs pointed us to him, Jesus Christ, the maker of the world, came into the world he had planned, he had made, and he himself on the cross became unmade. God made him who knew no sin to become wickedness itself. Jesus went to pieces, right? Mere anarchy was loosed upon him. He came apart and got God's righteous judgment that we could be remade, born again, put back together. Jesus got what we deserve. He got the ultimate day of disaster so that we could get what he deserved, a happy ending, happy ending. His day of disaster was our Good Friday. But he didn't just stay in the grave, did he? And we're going to celebrate that at length next week. No, he rose and he appeared to hundreds of eyewitnesses. And one of them, one of his followers, Peter, went on to say this about all that God had done through Jesus. Peter stood up 40 days after the resurrection and Jesus' return to heaven. And this is what he preached. He said this. Peter said, this man, Jesus, was handed over to you by what? By what? God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge and you with the help of wicked men put him to death by nailing him to the cross but God raised him from the dead freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him oh I love this look at this who handed Jesus over says God did right and yet who put him to death wicked men with wicked plans, but God worked it all out. He worked out the ultimate day of disaster for who? For himself, for his own glory. And that's why the apostle Paul, in his letter to the church at Ephesus, he could say this about it all too. He says, now church, in him, he said, we were also what? Chosen, having been predestined according to the what? The plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we might be for the praise of what? For his glory. For what? For himself. For himself. What's Paul saying? He's saying what Proverbs 16 already told you, that God is working everything out in your life for his glory and for your good. And if you can see this, if you believe this, then the scholar N.T. Wright, he said that if you can see this, he says this is the launch pad for the specifically Christian way of life. He says it's like rocket fuel. He says this way of life isn't a matter of getting in touch with our inner depths. It's certainly not about keeping the commands of a distant deity. Rather, it is the new way of being human, the Jesus-shaped way of being human, the cross and resurrection way of life, the spirit-led pathway. It is not about trying to obey dusty rules books from long ago or far away it is about practicing in the present the tunes we shall sing in god's new world 
I love that. I love that. And if the purpose of the universe is that, if the purpose of the eternity is Jesus, well, what ought to be our purpose now? Hmm? What ought to be our plans now? What tune ought we to sing? Oh, it's this. It's the same as God's tune and plan. It's to make Jesus known and to bring everything back. I'll say it again. It's to make Jesus known and to bring everything back. One more time. This is for free. It's to make everything known and to bring Jesus known and bring everything back. And this is why. This is why. You cannot be passive as a Christian today. You can't do it. Because you've got a job to do. You've got a job to make someone known and to bring someone back. To bring a piece of creation back to him. And it's going to take everything we've got and nothing less, as we sang earlier. It's going to take your choices and your plans. And that's why he saved you if you're a Christian. That's why he's adopted you. That's why he's redeemed you. To make Jesus known and to bring something back to him that's why you're going to get up tomorrow and go to work and do it with honesty and integrity and excellence with honest scales that's why this week you're going to bust in on that neighbor's life you've been meaning to talk to and invite him here to easter in the hope that jesus might speak to them and touch them that's why you're going to parent your children parents with compassion and intentionality because they're part of god's reclamation project I love this hymn. This is my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied and earth and heaven be one. I love this. Him writer knows God's got a plan. It's to make heaven and earth one. New heavens, new earth. God's working every choice towards that. So go ahead this week. Take a risk. Obey him more fervently. Lead more courageously. Follow more humbly. And when you go through the tough stuff, do it more hopefully. Can you say amen to that this morning?